These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. Back before our look at the gods Ishtar and Shamash, we were following the household of Ea Rabi and his wife Ilsha Hagalu. If you will recall, these two were completely fictional characters. They did not exist as literal people, but we are using them as a framework to examine what daily life could have looked like given the often dry facts of archaeology. Well, Arabi, our once poor farmer, has prospered mightily in the 15 years since we last saw him. Yes, those those uh, intervening special episodes sure took longer than you thought. His son, Ayabani, is now 18 years of age, an experienced farmhand when he isn't sneaking off into town to chase after young ladies. The two of them together, Ayabani and his father, Ayarabi, plus some hired laborers, maintain now 24 iku of land spread out over four separate fields along the canal. This is about eight and a half hectares. If it was all given over to barley, he could expect somewhere between 10 and 15,000 liters of grain each year. But an experienced farmer knows that the crops have to rotate, and so the different fields are given over to different crops. One is growing barley, another is growing vegetables like onions, leeks, and garlic, and two this year are currently being left fallow for pasture land. It's quite common for a farmer that has more than one plot of land to have them separated in different fields. Sometimes the different fields could be on opposite sides of town. And this was just a fact of land ownership. You couldn't always get nice, neat parcels. Small holding was far more common. And so if you were going to have a lot of land, you were more likely to have a lot of small plots scattered all over the place. This, by the way, even holds for something like king's land or temple land. The temple wouldn't have a single massive plantation the way that we might think of from the old American plantations and the real big farms of today. Instead, the temple and the king, they would own plots of land the same approximate size as a normal landholder, maybe a little bit bigger sometimes, but they would just hold a lot of them scattered all over the place. Anyway, in the early years, he would rent out the land being left on pasture to local shepherds. Now, this didn't generate as much wealth as actually growing crops, but the land needs to rest. And so, you leave it as pasture land to let the nitrogen fix in the soil, to let the water table drop a little bit, leach some of that salt out of the dirt. And also, if you let the sheep eat the grass on top of it, it brings in enough that the family is quite prosperous. Despite all the blessings of prosperity, however, Arabi has run into a hard limit to how much more he can grow his tiny empire. He and his wife, Ilsha Gallo, have been blessed with a total of nine births in their 18 years together, of which seven have survived. 
Now, for the Bronze Age, this is an incredible blessing, both the high fertility of the mother and the high survival rate among the children, both of which, on average, were lower. However, of these surviving children, all but the oldest, Ea Bani, turned out to have the wrong gender, and are more or less completely useless in the field. To use their God-granted prosperity to purchase new lands would be much less efficient, since Ea-Rabi would need to hire laborers to work those extra lands. Now, he'd still get something out of that, and this is what the wealthy landowners did. But he wants to make the most from what the gods have given him. That's central to the Mesopotamian mindset. The gods dictate fate, and we just roll with it as best we can. And so, if the gods have given him six girl children and a very skilled wife, then he's going to make the most of it by investing much more of his wealth into livestock. Now, initially he had a mix of sheep and goats, but in recent years he's focused solely on keeping, raising, and breeding a lineage of high-quality, wool-bearing sheep, because if we bring goats into the story, it makes it more complicated. It's still basically the same. A goat is uh, a poor man's sheep. I mean, so sheep are less labor-intensive than farmland, and while he does pasture them on his fallow fields for part of the year, they also do well in marginal lands that are just no good for farming for the rest of the year. His flock stands at 27, of which 20 are fully grown adult sheep and 7 are lambs. Those 27 only require that he pay a single shepherd a partial wage, since the shepherd also manages sheep owned by multiple other smallholders in his flock. Now, a flock of sheep produces three commodities. Milk will come year-round as long as the ewes are cared for properly and they're bred on a regular schedule. Meat, of course, comes at the end of an animal's life. Most often, young rams are sold for meat if they're not needed for breeding. But, of course, the regular sacrifice schedules call for sheep of all sorts to be sa sacrificed at various times of the year. And wool comes once a year. Now, wool is what we're going to focus on. And it comes during the molting season, from April to July. Goats, by the way, they're, they're economically quite similar, though they tend to be cheaper and they can live on more marginal lands, but all of the outputs are worth correspondingly less, which is why ARB has moved away from goats. He likes the nicer stuff. Animals in general, though, they do have certain advantages over holding wealth in the form of land. While there is a free and generally open market in land, I say that, like, you can't buy all the land. A lot of the land is locked up in institutions like temples and uh, just people who won't sell and the king's land, but there is still enough land trading hands that there seems to have been, like if you wanted to buy land in general and you weren't super picky about where you got it, then you could buy land whenever you wanted. Still, 
land wealth is just not as fungible as animal wealth. Even without a uniform currency, it's much easier to sell off a single goat than it is to sell a parcel of land. It's much easier to find a buyer. It requires a lot less investment to get return out of an animal, which only needs feeding and protection, than a plot of land which requires intensive working to see a return. Of course, now, a sheep can get sick or it can run away much easier. I mean, a plot of land doesn't run away. And so, like all things in life, there's trade-offs here. And the people in the Bronze Age, they seem to have seen those trade-offs, and they shift quite naturally from agricultural to pastoral preference and back again based on local conditions and their own judgment of what seemed best at any one time. The thing about sheep, though, which Arabi would have had to learn over his first few years with animal trading, is that the best milk sheep are not the best meat sheep, and so on, they're not the best wool sheep. This is still pretty early in the history of domestication, but already hundreds of breeds exist across just Mesopotamia. And Arabi has access to dozens of named breeds without traveling too far. And each one is a complicated constellation of traits carefully bred by thousands of sheep owners over thousands of years. Uh, maybe not thousands of sheep owners if it's only thousands of years. Whatever, you know what I mean. Some are hardy. Some of these sheep are real strong, they're real resilient. Some of them grow really fat. Some of them are more docile, which is preferred in certain circumstances. Some tend towards different fleece colors. You get, you know, you get the ba-ba black sheep. Of course, most are whitish. Some are yellow or brown. Some are mixed colors, which is desirable if you want wool of a particular color without having to dye it. A or B is consciously constructing his flock through selective breeding and purchases from around the area to produce large amounts of excellent wool. Now, generally speaking, the fat-tailed lowland sheep around native to Mesopotamia itself were more productive, but the highland sheep from the foothills of the Zagros Mountains and the northern mountains were more hardy. And breeding tended to involve selecting either more resilient sheep or sheep with better outputs. Though it's a whole thing is vastly more complicated than just those two broad categories. And if you talk to a modern rancher, you know that there's a lot of stuff that just doesn't get written down in terms of breeding, in terms of animal raising, just local knowledge. And this is, I mean, you could talk to a modern rancher and he'll tell you that, uh, but, of course, modern ranchers are all literate. None of these guys were literate. It was all oral tradition and oral knowledge. The point is, it's super complicated. But the lineage A or B is breeding is maybe a bit less hardy, and the ewes tend to lose their milk a little earlier than the others, but he mostly wants the wool. You see, wool is valuable as a fabric. And with seven women in his household, he has seven people working for no pay who can process wool into clothing. Now, the organization of production varied widely across times and places in the ancient Near East. The pinnacle of clothing production was likely the factories 
factories which employed dozens, perhaps even below hundreds of women, paying them in rations to mass-produce cloth for typically the king's enrichment. Sometimes the temples would fund these sort of enterprises. These early sweatshops, that's exactly what they were, and it would have been sweaty, it's hot in the Middle East. These early sweatshops were first developed, or at least first built on a massive scale, during the Akkadian Empire. But the great merchant houses of the old Assyrian trade empires also appear to have had large-scale textile factories capable of pumping out hundreds of thousands of articles of clothing per year for export to the entire region. Now, alongside this occasional factory model, however, is the fact that for all that these factories in the really good times were churning out a lot of stuff, most clothing for most people was produced at home. It's likely that nearly every common woman knew how to at least turn a bolt of cloth into a basic garment, and most could probably take the entire process all the way from raw wool to simple clothing. Though for most it would have taken quite a while and been of, shall we say, very modest quality. There are definite advantages to specialization in the textile field, advantages which Arabi knows about and is keen on taking advantage of, turning his household into something a bit larger scale than simple domestic production, though still, of course, far from the great factories of the most prosperous eras of the greatest empires. Those would have been really exceptional. I mean, they definitely existed, but they were not the main way that all clothing was produced. Most likely, we think. I should mention, though, that wool is not the only source of fabric in the region. It isn't even the oldest source of fabric. It seems that when the first humans left Africa on the great prehistoric migrations that populated the world, they brought with them principally two technologies. They knew how to make fire, and they knew how to make clothing from plant fibers. Pretty much everything else, they also knew basic tool manufacturing. I guess that's three then. Everything else, though, including animal domestication and turning wool into cloth, came later. However, flax, the primary plant for cloth in the entire Near East, isn't grown very much in lower Mesopotamia. The plant can be grown, but it doesn't really favor the environment. It's far more popular in Egypt and the Levant, and even sort of in northern Mesopotamia, where they get a bit more rain each year and rely less on irrigation. Flax has two different varieties. One is used for the seeds and makes linseed oil. Another is used for the fibers to make linen. And linen still makes up about 10% of the cloth used in Mesopotamia, mostly among the wealthy. How much of that linen is imported and how much is grown domestically is a very hard question to answer 3,500 years later. But Ilsha Higalu and her six daughters would have known about linen, even if maybe they weren't necessarily super familiar with it. Perhaps one year, let's just say, Arabi did try and get some flax seeds. Now, he would have needed to plant them in the field closest to the canal, because 
careful irrigation is required when the annual rainfall is insufficient, as it is in pretty much all of Lower and Middle Mesopotamia. It's a very finicky plant, and while the general steps are much the same as planting any other crop, the worry factor is so much higher. The seeds alone are a pretty substantial investment, and as the stalks come up, A or B can already see that they're not coming up with the same vigor as barley would in that same field. Still, in this, in this uh, particular year, the crop is mostly successful, and after three months, the plant is harvested. Now, the harvest cannot be done with A or B's shiny new bronze sickle, Instead, he and his son and some hired men all need to work together to uproot each plant individually, and then they set them all out in the field to dry in the sun. Now, while the flax is drying, they can dismiss the hired hands, and Ayabani, the strapping 18-year-old young man, is given his father's hoe and told to start digging redding pools and some channels to feed these pools from the irrigation canal. Now, these pools are shallow, but they're very large, and it's probably not very enjoyable work under the summer sun but he gets the digging done right as the plants have reached optimal dryness. Next, the plants are placed into the pools, and water is allowed to fill them. Now, the water in these pools is changed twice a day by opening a sluice gate to drain and another gate to allow the water to enter. For 15 days, the plants are going to sit in these pools, which very quickly become foul. The odor, the awful stench is going to overwhelm the entire field, and the water, as it drains out, looks like it's been befouled by Nurgle, the god of disasters. Now, these 15 days of waiting isn't too much work, but it's still going to be stressful because the flax needs to be checked each day. If the plant is kept in the water for too long, the decomposition will eat away at the fibers, causing weak fibers that break during processing. But if the plant's pulled out too soon, then not enough of the surrounding material will have decomposed, and plant gunk will stick to these fibers, which is very hard to remove without actually destroying the fibers. And actually, Aya Rabi, in his inexperience, pulls the plants out a little bit too early, which is going to make the processing more difficult than it needs to be. Now, after this, what's called the retting process, this decomposition stage, the flax is allowed to sun-dry once again, and the fibers are pulled off the stem of each plant by hand. 90 to 95% of the entire biomass of the plant is wasted in this process. It's all tossed aside to just get burned later. And since he pulled it out early, the total wastage is a little bit on the high end. But the whole family spends the next week or two pulling half-meter-long fibers off of each plant and sorting them. The finest fibers are placed carefully in one pile. Now, these are textile-quality fibers and are going to be spun into linen thread. Another pile, about two-thirds as large, contains the coarser fibers, which can be used for linen rope. 
Now the linen is then spun and woven into pieces of fabric, much the same way as wool, which we're going to look at here in a bit, though with some slightly different techniques. However, this one bad experience with flax is what got A or B to invest more heavily in sheep of high wool quality. With wool, that first step is so much easier, though still, it's terribly labor-intensive by modern standards, but I mean, it's the Bronze Age, everything is labor-intensive by modern standards. Arabi has heard, in his animal trading, that there is a new lineage of sheep that's been bred since the Kassites took power in Babylon. This high-tech, modern breed of sheep grows its wool year-round and doesn't even molt, producing noticeably more over the course of the year than most sheep. Now, these sheep, they require a special bronze blade called a shearer, and the sheep is shaved over all of its body like a prisoner or a slave to get the wool off. As far as Arabi is concerned, these are the sheep of the future, always 20 years away, much like nuclear fusion power, and he doubts he'll ever see them until humanity advances into the Iron Age. Arabi gets wool from his sheep the same way that people have done since the gods first put sheep on the earth, a technique called rooing or plucking. In late spring and early summer, right as nature is getting hotter, the sheep breeds of the Bronze Age naturally start to lose their hair, a process called molting, which occurs in many hairy and feathered animals to control their covering and their heat loss as the seasons change. From April to July, he and his daughters bring the sheep one at a time to a pen by the house. There they tie up the sheep, and with three fingers, thumb and forefinger and middle finger, they begin to pull at the sheep's hairs. They don't pull too hard. Though it is called plucking, the process is more about looking for the hairs that are about to come out on their own and just encouraging them with a light tug. Sort of the difference between pulling the teeth of a healthy adult and pulling the tooth of a child who's been wiggling it for weeks and weeks. And if you do it just right, the tuft of wool is going to just come out in your hand. Now, I've done it correctly, this doesn't hurt the sheep. And after the first time or two, they get used to it, unless the hand plucking them is too rough and really tugs aggressively at the tufts that aren't ready to come out. If the plucking process is done too early in the year, only a small amount of wool is going to be ready to come off. And if done too late, then some of the wool will have just already fallen out. So it seems possible, likely. One theory that I've read is that each sheep would be rued multiple times over these molting months to get all the wool off. Wool, though, it's not a single uniform product, and for an ancient shepherd, for a modern shepherd, but for an ancient shepherd, there's a lot of complexity involved. Each tuft of wool pulled out is actually right there in your hand, two kinds of wool. The outer layer, called the hair, is thicker and protects the layer of thin underwool. Now, these two layers can be hand-separated 
quite easily and spun as two different qualities of thread, or they can be spun together as a mixed thread which has its own qualities. More than that, different parts of the sheep produce different thicknesses of hair and underwool. Modern sheep, you can look this up, they have diagrams that divide them into like as many as 15 sections when sheared, each with slightly different grades used for a myriad of things in modern industry. A or B does not have nearly as many categories, but there are at least two piles coming off of each ship Sheep, the thicker wool of the neck and belly, gets separated from the finer wool of the back. Also, different sheep produce different thicknesses of wool, both individually and across breeds. Ultimately, what Aaron Rabi and his wife are looking at as they sort the plucked wool is the thickness of an individual strand. I mean, not each strand individually, but generally speaking, how thick the strands are. Based on strand thickness and how carefully they spin the wool into threads, the final bolt of cloth is going to fall into one of five general categories. The first category is royal quality, second quality is near royal quality, and then they, what they call third and fourth quality, which are the two most common. Fourth is the most common quality, and the fifth quality or coarse quality of wool is the lowest quality. For the majority of sheep, the majority of their wool is going to be fourth quality, about 70% on the average ancient sheep. Now, thanks to careful monitoring of his breed and my desire to have easy numbers for the upcoming math, only 50% of the wool that he harvests is of fourth quality, with the finer hairs being third quality, and about 20% of the underwool being good enough for either royal or near-royal quality. Now, the amount of wool they get from each sheep varies on size, health, and gender, and breed, running from about half a kilogram to one and a half kilograms. And so that I don't lose track, again, of the math, we're going to say that Arabi's final wool harvest at the end of July from his 20 sheep is 20 kilograms of wool. 10 kilos of 4th grade, 6 of 3rd grade, and 4 of 2nd grade. These are bundled together in their particular qualities and stored in the house, where they're going to be worked on for much of the rest of the year. As we're going to see, this whole process is going to take a very long time. I don't know if 20 kilos sounds like a lot to you, or if it sounds like not a lot, but... I mean, each of these steps is going to take all year for these, even though there's six of these ladies here. Now, this is a bit higher quality than would normally be expected. Though there were flocks that appear to have produced even higher quality of wool than this, most of them were owned or contracted to the kings and the temples specifically. This is a pretty good flock for an average guy, an average Ayurabi. Now that they've stockpiled the wool, the tiny textile factory begins operation. 
Each of the daughters, from the youngest to the oldest, has watched their mother and sisters in years past, and all but the youngest two are practiced hands at nearly every stage of the process. And if any of them are not quite confident in their jobs just yet, they're going to have all year to practice, and many years after that. The first step towards processing the huge pile of wool is to comb the wool. Wool, after all, is hair, and in the Bronze Age it was combed in much the same way as hair is. Now, if you have in your head an image of carding wool with large paddles, nope, cast that right out of your mind. Nothing nearly so efficient has been invented yet. Instead, visualize one of those pit combs, maybe as wide as your palm, mostly rectangular with like 10 to 20 tines sticking out, probably made of wood, maybe made of something else. Now, manually pull a tuft of wool through this comb. That's going to fight you. It's tangled, and the only way to get it untangled is some good comb-on-wool violence. Now, this single tuft needs a good number of combs before it's manageable, with all the individual hairs mostly untangled and pointing the same direction. A comb is never going to get you all the way untangled, but it will get you most of the way there. Now, this, needless to say, is a ton of work, and it's not terribly interesting. If one of the other sisters is tasked with handling the household chores, whoever is combing the wools likely spent 8 to 12 hours every day just on this task most of the days each week, processing between 100 and 125 grams each day. That's not a lot. That's not a lot for 8 to 12 hours of work. 100 to 125 grams. Now, it's going to take between 160 and 200 days for a single woman to comb all of this wool. And given that a number of days each month were set aside for festivals, rest days, and holy days... This one job would likely consume a dedicated wool comber's entire life for the entire year. This is if we have this uh, 20 kilograms of wool. Imagine sitting in a dark, small room, surrounded by wool, slowly, slowly combing it out every day. Imagine using the same muscles every day, at the same task, with minimal stimulation. Now imagine that you have to do this, because you see how close your family comes each year to starvation, even when the family is as prosperous as A. Rabi's family. Imagine doing this and feeling lucky, lucky, blessed by the gods, because you know, you see, that there are far worse jobs out there. Bronze Age life was harder than most of us can imagine. Luckily, in this particular case, it's likely that it wouldn't just be one of the sisters doing this all year, but most of the sisters collaborating for a burst of about two months or so. 
In the factories, there were dedicated wool combers, but it seems likely that domestic production would be a bit less of a merciless assembly line. There's a bit more room for whining and complaining in a family context. However pleasant or unpleasant the task is, the combing stage is the stage that reveals which wool is and is not good for using. And at this stage, maybe 20 to 30% of the wool is simply thrown out before we get to the next stage. Speaking of that next stage, though, we're not going to get there today, because when I recorded this episode, it ended up being like an hour and ten minutes long, more than twice a normal episode, and so I've just cut it right here, and next week, we're going to pick right back up where we've left off. We're going to learn about uh, weaving and spinning the thread. You spin it before you weave it, and we're going to learn about what kinds of clothing this would all get turned into, and a bit about our sources. It's going to be good. Uh, you're going to be, you're going to love it. This is going to be great. And so I'll see you next time to talk about weaving and stuff. Thank you for listening.